Episode 4. Did you know the average cost of long-term care is between 142000 and 214000 often swallowing up the value of the family home and wealth? In this episode, we share ideas on how this cost can be reduced by looking at unclaimed benefits, possible use of home to delay charges, and ideas on how these costs can be identified and contained. Welcome to our fourth MDG podcast. So what's our topic for this week, Nicola? We agreed that you would be talking about how the cost of long-term care could impact the £82 million a day average family wealth transfer. Yes, but before we do, I've received a letter from our listener, Arnold Trellis. Oh yes, what does he want? We said that we are members of four professional bodies and he has challenged that as he is not aware there are that many. Well, these are the ones where entrance exams apply. We're members of many other professional associations. So for Arnold's benefit, let's count them. We're members of the Chartered Insurance Institute, and you hold chartered status, so that's one. You are a member of the Chartered Institute for Securities and Investment, that's two. We are both members of the Society of Trustees and Estate Practitioners, making three. And you were an early member of the Society of Later Life Advisors, so that's four. And it's your Society of Later Life Advisors, or SOLA membership, that supports this week's episode on the cost of long-term care. So this week, it will be me interviewing you, and let me remind you that I will be fining you for using technical jargon or being boring. Okay, so let's get started. So, in the context of family wealth transfers, why is this an issue? Well, in the southeast of England, the average cost of residential care is somewhere between £1,200 and £1,800 a week, according to the National Care Planning Council. The average period of care is 835 days or 119 weeks, so that will cost between £142,800 and £214,200. Nursing care will cost more, so it could leave a large hole in family wealth being transferred, and this does not include the emotional cost. So for those people that don't know what you mean, what do you mean by the emotional cost? When a care home is being considered for loved ones, it is often because that care cannot be provided by the family due to other commitments. Commitments to their own family, to their work, because the care needs specialist attention, or for many other reasons, such as living too far away. There is often a feeling of guilt because it is felt that care should be provided by the family. There are also a lot of concerns about who will be paying for the cost of this care. So what advice do you have for our listeners? Well, as we are looking at what can reduce the transfer of family wealth in this series, I will talk about the cost of long-term care in the context of reducing what is available for the next generation rather than as a subject in itself. We might return to this later in our podcasts. The need for care is either through necessity or choice. What do you mean by that? Let's consider two different situations. An elderly parent who has been taken into hospital because of a fall, often resulting in a broken hip. When the hospital have mended the hip and literally got the patient back on their feet, the discharge team will decide how the post-discharge care will be provided. If there is a spouse at home who can continue with the recovery and administer medication, discharge back to the home will be considered. But where there is no one at home to do the caring, discharging into a care home is often the choice. But what about involvement by the family? 
Yeah, ideally a family member or close friend should be present at the discharge team meeting when these decisions are being made. But what if the patient does not have the capacity or is very confused? Now we're looking at the need for strong representation and the need to have powers of attorney in place. We will cover this in a later episode when we talk to Tammy Wood at Debenhams Ottaway. But for the moment, let's distinguish between medical care and the need for residential care. While the client needs clinical care, the costs are covered by the NHS. When the NHS have completed their work, the cost of residential care begins. Okay, so let's go back to the case you're talking about at the point of the client being discharged. Where the family is involved, they might decide to discharge into a local care home and meet the costs acting as attorney, or they might not have the funds available to pay for the care, and in these circumstances, they will be relying on the local authority to pay for the care. But the local authority will only do this after a rigorous investigations of what assets are available. So how do they decide who pays for what? As I said, I want to keep our information in this episode to how costs of long-term care can impact on the transfer of family wealth, but the following should be considered. One, where there are individual assets greater than 23,250, the patient will be considered as a self-funder and expected to pay for the care. Two, this will be the case until the assets or savings fall below 23,250, and at that point, a tariff charge is applied. Three, when the resources fall below 14,250, the local authority should meet the cost of care. Four, where there is a spouse or someone who qualifies as a carer living at home, the value of the property cannot be included in the financial assessment. Five, there are a number of non-means tested benefits available and we have provided information on these in today's landing page links. Okay, so what if they don't want to involve the local authorities' adult care services? How, how do they go about it then? When the patient or the family decide the best place will be in a care home, the following should be considered. A. In this week's links, we have shown the Age UK's very useful guide to selecting a care home. B. Many care homes are able to increase their level of care as the patient's needs increase, and this can be extended to nursing care and dementia care, but not all homes have this range of support. It can be very disorientating and distressing to move somebody to another home for this additional level of care, and this should be considered when selecting the home. C. Again, note the possible availability of non-means-tested benefits, and these can increase in the future depending on the level of care needs. D. Having identified the area where homes are being considered, arrange a personal visit and talk to the staff. I know when I was looking for a care home for my mother, only a few moments in some of these places was enough for me to decide they were just not suitable. E. I found creating a good working relationship with the care team at the home was important as they are able to spot gradual deteriorations and the possible need to claim additional benefits. F. In addition to the care home charges, there will be a pocket money fund to provide little extras such as hairdressing, pedicures, daily papers, outings and the like, and this will also need to be funded. I thought we agreed that we are looking at ideas on how to manage these charges to preserve wealth for the following generations. Yes, okay, so back to the storyline. Essentially, there are a number of options and the choices will depend on many factors. Where there is a family home involved and the family want to keep their home, they could consider applying to the local authority for a deferred payment agreement. Where they don't want to keep the home, they could consider selling the home and then using the money to fund the care themselves and hope that it doesn't go on for too long. Or 
they could buy an immediate care annuity or they could rent the property privately in the hope that to generate some income that will meet the cost of cares. So let's start looking at, first of all, then at this DPA arrangement. When the CARE Act was introduced in 2014, the Deferred Payment Agreement, or the DPA as you said, was introduced to standardise what some of the local authorities were already doing in an informal way. We have provided a link to the Age UK information sheet, but essentially the following conditions will apply. 1. There must be less than 23,250 in savings. 2. The local authority will only pay the cost of care at their concessionary rates, so if listeners intend applying for a DPA, make sure the home they are considering has local authority funded beds or be prepared to meet the difference in charges themselves. 3. The local authority register a variable charge for the cost of the care on the total deeds. 4. The interest added is based on a special guilt interest rate that is considered quite attractive. 5. The property can be let subject to the local authority approving the letting agreement. 6. At the end of the arrangement, the property will need to be sold to clear the accumulated charge. At that point, the advantageous interest rate is removed and penalties are applied. 7. But above all, and this is a very big but, agreement to a DPA is entirely at the discretion of the local authority. So whilst they are obliged to consider the DPA as part of the Act, they are not required to accept it. So the family home cannot be regarded as secure if it has to be sold eventually. True. It is often used to give the family some breathing space and to look at other options. So if a DPA is not acceptable to the family or the local authority, what is the other option? Well, bearing in mind that we are looking at ways of quantifying exposure to the cost of care, bearing in mind that it is often open-ended, buying an immediate care annuity should be considered. How do they work? Well, effectively, the family looks to a life company to pay for the open-ended liability of the care in exchange for a one-off capital payment. Why don't you explain that in more detail? Okay, this market has recently been joined by another major provider, making it even more competitive. Essentially, very detailed medical underwriting is undertaken, allowing the provider to assess life expectancy and to calculate the cost of the single premium. Really? As simple as that? Well, there can be a bewildering number of different costs depending on what they are funding, including inflation values. We know the cost of care is increasing faster than inflation, and this can be covered, or fixed inflation rates, or a period of delay before the company start to make the benefit payments, or the ability of the family to make supplementary payments themselves. Sounds complicated, but we provide a fixed price to get and explain the underwritten quotes so the family can assess the options. From that perspective, a big advantage of going this route is to quantify the cost of the future care, allowing the family to have a more reliable expectation of what they will eventually receive from the estate. However, it should be noted that to get a guarantee of a refund, should death occur earlier than expected, can be costly. But we do look at ways of mitigating this when we go through the underwritten options. All right, I think I should now just complete these other options. We said about uh, selling the property and then using the proceeds to fund the care, but this is, as we've said, it's open-ended and you wouldn't have the protection of, of identifying the, the overall costs or retaining the property and letting it out. But often we find that the cost of getting the property into a lettable condition can be very high. And then obviously who pays for that? As well as the rental income will not meet the weekly cost of care that I identified at the start of this. 
Okay, Pete, I think I've got a very simple way of getting clients' assets down to the 14,250 threshold. Just give the assets away to the family before the care is needed. Yes, I can see that could be the answer. I don't think the clients haven't already thought of this. However, there are now an established methods local authorities use to see if assets have been deliberately given away in an effort to avoid care costs. And this is called deliberate deprivation of assets. We have included a reference to this under this week's further information. We have heard the argument that if assets are given away before care might be needed, it's a winning move, whether or not care is needed. But, and again a big but, if care is not needed and the family home was the asset given away, there is likely to be issues around the security of tenure. Greedy family members are victims to sell the property and possible inheritance tax liability. As we said in our interview to Richard about gifting, you can't give away assets like the home and continue to live there as though nothing has happened. Additionally, see what Ian Monsell has to say about that in his episode on wills and estate planning. As we said, giving advice where long-term care is involved can be very emotional for our clients. So we always try to combine our technical expertise with empathy and understanding. We also keep an eye on other aspects of financial planning, such as inheritance tax. Okay, now let's look at our regular feature. Case notes. This week, we want to look at a case involving equity release. We will be looking at equity releases in a future episode as a way of family wealth transfer and how it can be accommodated. We were introduced to a case involving a Victorian parsonage. She was in need of modernisation and the clients had already spoken to one of the national equity release brokers, but wanted a second opinion. The parsonage was in a very large garden, accessed from both a main road as well as a side lane, and appeared to lend itself to the possibility of development, subject of course to the usual planning consents. We suggested the garden should be divided to form a separate development plot and recorded on the land registry. This did not reduce the value of the remaining property and garden, so the equity release value was not affected, but it did restrict the extent of the equity release provider's charge. As the client wanted to have the option of paying off the equity release at some point in the future, we selected a product that made this possible. We understand that subsequently the clients did sell the separate plot to a developer and use the proceeds to settle the equity release account, allowing their children to have the full value of the parsonage as their legacy. A simple demonstration of clients achieving their financial planning objectives through a little creative thinking on our part. And now it's time for our feature. Walkwater Eye this week. Yes, each week we go through information we spot or receive to see if there's anything of interest to our listeners. In a recent Solar Members article... Sorry, that was jargon I just heard. That would be £5 for my charity, thank you. A momentary lapse of concentration. Although I mentioned in our earlier reply to Arnold Trellis, it's a fair cop. Solar stands for the Society of Later Life Advisors, and as I was saying, I saw in their recent article that according to the Investment House Vanguard, using an advisor can add 3% each year to the net value of a client's investments, and from a second investment house, Russell Investments, the figure is higher at 4.4%. This advantage is attributed to a number of reasons. One, preventing behavioural mistakes, from that we interpret it means stopping clients making ill-advised investments that they had chosen for themselves. Two, long-term financial planning with structured reviews. Three, better budgeting of household expenditure. Four, rebalancing portfolios as needed. And five, smarter tax planning. Additionally, 
The International Longevity Centre have been running a long-term study and they have concluded that taking professional advice has added 2.5 billion to people's savings and investments. Those in an ongoing relationship with their financial advisors are 50% better off than those that are not. The benefits of getting advice outweigh the associated costs and put simply, those taking advice are likely to be richer in retirement. Yes, we know we're worth our weight in gold, but it's nice to have it independently verified. Shame I didn't include conceit in my list of fines. Okay, before I recap on the main points in this week's subject, funding long-term care, I would not be doing justice to this subject without mentioning scams and rip-offs inflicted on the old and vulnerable. This has now reached endemic proportions and is rapidly turning into a national disgrace. Why is this increasing at such an alarming rate? Well, based on the information I receive, there are a number of reasons. The elderly being more savvy with IT, having their own laptops and assessing the web, silver surface if you will. The increasing isolation of the elderly as families move away, divorces and remarriages leading to multi-layered families. The perpetrators using more sophisticated methods of entrapment by hacking into friends' emails and sending email invitations via their address book and also using spyware. Increasing loneliness, particularly during lockdown. The perpetrators selling prospecting lists of the vulnerable on the dark web. So what do you recommend our listeners do? Well, for those with powers of attorney, it can take direct action, but really it's a case of keeping vigilant, making sure the security is up to date on the software being used, watching out for the unusual transactions on the bank statements and unopened parcels. Why unopened parcels? Well, I heard from a client of her friend who was repeatedly buying health supplements, but when they arrived, they were stored under the bed unused. When challenged, the friend said that each week a very nice young lady would call asking how she was since their last chat and looking to renew the earlier order. But the most telling point was that the friend said how much she looked forward to these weekly calls and their chats as this was the only contact she had from one weekend to the next. A very sad indictment of our modern society. We've shown various links on the subject in this week's further information. Okay, let me wrap up this week's episode on funding long-term care with our usual top tips. Number one, make sure that all benefits are being claimed. Each year, a staggering 3.7 billion of benefit goes unclaimed. And see our further information section. Two, select a care home that is appropriate for the needs, as well as reasonably convenient for those likely to be visiting and make sure you check this out with your own visit. Three, take a sensible view on the costs involved. If the savings are close to the 23250 threshold, get the adult care services at the local authority involved. Four, if the house is the largest single asset and you need some breathing space, speak to the adult care services about the third payment agreement. But don't forget the conditions were mentioned and that the final decision on this will be entirely at their discretion. Five, Speak to us about our fixes to get the best underwritten price for an immediate care annuity. Six, apparently my idea of giving the assets away to avoid care charges is a non-starter, but we often find restructuring an investment portfolio to generate income rather than growth will help. Seven, also don't forget that where an equity release product is secured against the home, the last one going into care will trigger the provider ending the deal and calling in the loan resulting in the need to sell. Eight, as summer members, we are available for an initial chat to look at these options. 
look forward to your company on the next podcast when we'll be speaking to a leading family law consultant on estate planning. Don't forget to look at our links on where to find more information a bit longer this week due to the content. Goodbye for this week.